kids, it's the Occult Mystery Podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. Welcome to the Akat Disney Podcast, where we uncover all of the secrets hidden behind the mouse. This is Matt here. Joining me, as always, is Thomas, the paranoid American. Howdy. <laughs> yeah, you got some real metal look right now. It's, that, it's like Christmas metal. You've got the green in the background, and then your it's face is It's funny you say that. I've got, a, I've got like a Christmas cuff, too, that I'm rocking for I don't know what reason. It just happened oh, okay. to be. So Merry Christmas. No, I, I, you know, I have my coffee in the morning and it's, um, the, the coffee mugs, like say the month in them. And it's very, very rarely the month I'm drinking the coffee. I believe I was drinking a uh, May this morning and this is August, of course. So, uh, you know, as long as it holds the liquid, I guess it's fine. It would be nice to have the luxury of, of just having storage and time to just transfer like your Halloween mugs out with your Christmas mug or, you know, I guess your Thanksgiving mugs, right? And then your Christmas mugs. I'm sure there's people out there that have just got like 12 months of mugs. But yeah, I'm kind yeah, of we like you. Or... We only have like three of the months. That's the thing, right? Like it's not, like, it would make more <laughs> sense if we had all 12. The the most fun, we, we live with my in-laws. And uh, when we first came in, the, the, the key piece of glassery was for some reason they had like a wacky races uh, cup, which is glass, glass. Wacky races. Yeah, that's like the uh, is it Hanna Barbera? I think. Uh, which okay. Is, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like so obscure and so specific. I was like, "What a wacky racist mug!" Or what? What's this? Okay, glass. I'm calling it the wrong thing. Um, you remember the old like uh, Burger King and Denny's and um, like even like the old jelly glasses used to have all the old cartoon characters and stuff on them. And I've always wanted to go back and recollect them, but apparently they were made with like some kind of lead paint or some sort of unsafe you know materials so they're actually not a good thing to drink out of anymore yeah 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 i think i i think i heard something along those lines so uh it i might guess have been want... lead paint i'm just making something up but it's it's <laughs> not it's something that you probably don't want to put in your body at this point. that that's the amount of knowledge i'm coming with i i remember hearing someone saying something about that but um yeah I, I, well, I, those I, are classic designs man I guess you could collect the old lunch boxes, the metal lunch boxes. I mean, don't lick those, right? Because they probably do have lead Ten, paint. But, uh, shot, yeah. yeah, but uh, as far as just like, you know, something you could have, that's cool. Oliver and Company is today's movie uh, having a lot of. I thought it had a lot of product placement, but apparently it did not, at least in the animation end. Uh, most of the logos and stuff you see were just there to make it authentically look like New York. Like they didn't want to. Uh, put fake names and stuff in so yeah right as you were saying that i kind of assumed that's what what the, the case was because then i was also trying to picture a slow zoom in of a bird's eye view of uh times square new york city in the late 80s i guess early 90s ish and imagine that without kodak and coca-cola and like a whole bunch of advertisements all over the place it just it would look weird it wouldn't look like new york I was just hearing about the uh, the opposite. I, I was listening to someone's trip report of uh, Meow Wolf's Omega Mart in Las Vegas. Have you heard of this? I haven't. Okay, it's it's a fake supermarket with 
fake products like like art fun you know art school funny like it's not like laugh out loud it's just weird but apparently as you explore this fake supermarket you'll find hidden passages that go to like an alien warehouse or something with psychedelic lighting and art installations and stuff so okay i'm into that what do they just charge like a cover fee to get in that's right uh you know it's like 35 bucks to get in or whatever and and you just explore and you you like you know oh this refrigerator opens up and you can walk into it into these like back corridors that go into like trippy land and uh do they provide the drugs or do you have to bring your own you have to bring your own drugs unfortunately so uh so um, extra 35 plus and on you know whatever the drug budget is well they got one in vegas they have something completely different in uh denver i believe so you know those are places you could probably uh, easily yeah do that (laughs) (laughs) that sounds awesome actually i might have to add that to the to the list yeah i mean we got that kind of thing in japan but it's just like it's not on the table in japan which is uh one one, one of the uh things you you have to accept living in japan for better or for worse so you are on an island so (laughs) yeah no no comment we're not going to advocate anything with no we're not advocating anything yeah no no i'm just sitting here talking about um uh the, the, the one end of Japanese boredom. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Oliver and Company, I think it's the first time I watched this film. It came out in 1988. So I, I'm pretty sure I was nine years old. And I mean, my my dad was very quickly dra- dragging me into movies that were not animated. You know, I saw Ghostbusters and Return of Jedi and Back to the Future in theaters, probably slightly too young to do that. And, oh, Temple of Doom, definitely too young for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just didn't see it. And then when they re-released it, I also wouldn't have cared. And it was not on home video for the uh, eight years in between. So this one just never came on my radar, despite being the first animated Disney film to break $100 million globally. Wow, that's actually surprising about that that note. Or or maybe it isn't because I guess my, my biggest note on this whole movie is that it's the first movie that I'm aware of that breaks out of the fantasy land Disney that takes place in some like forgotten era. It takes place in modern day. And I can't, can you, can you think of another animated Disney movie that didn't take place in, you know, like the, like the real world, essentially. When I was going through the uh, trivia, it said it was the fourth. It, um, it was saying Dumbo is contemporary, which, you know, makes sense. You're watching okay, animals yeah, from most part. Enough, fair enough. I wasn't sure about this one. They said 101 Dalmatians, but I was like, that wasn't that like earlier. I felt like that was earlier in 1960 or whatever. That's a, that's a good one. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess because the 101 Dalmatians, though, also took place in a very Victorian-esque setting. You know what I mean? Like, even yeah. though this one was based on um, like, a, like a Victorian setting as well, they modernized it. Whereas 101 Dalmatians doesn't feel as modernized. They had cars, but everyone was still sort of living in like, uh, a century prior i guess yeah that one felt a little dodgery or is that just england the... is that just england <laughs> yeah yeah maybe yeah maybe that's the post-war blues you know in, in england so um and the other one they brought up which actually there were there were times when it was considered no mobile you're gonna say no this would be a it. sequel to the gnome mobile um or, or, or the rescuers <laughs> so to speak um, which does get a sequel eventually but this is not it so they really wanted to sequelize the rescuers like they they you know they had a, a stiffy for that i guess which is kind of weird <laughs> they um, wanted to implant some more of that that programming i that guess one, that, that one held up the longest yeah I, I guess the rescuers is the most like sequelable seek is that a word sequelable you i mean you could easily have like oh these these mice have like another adventure no problem which eventually happens right so 
Um, this, made... I mean, my opinion, the second one is far better than the first one too. Not maybe not like story wise, but just aesthetically, and it keeps my interest way longer. That that'll be new for me. Um. Oh, the the other just while we're on like dollars and cents, this came out the same day as the Land Before Time, uh, which so Bluth and Disney were in which direct completely overshadows this. this movie, in my opinion, for me personally. It yeah, and at opening weekend, uh, it was number one. Oliver and Company was number four, but Oliver and Company stuck around in theaters longer and eventually made more money. Um. Have I seen Land Before Time or any of its 93 sequels? I'm, I'm not sure I've actually seen those either, to be honest. So, <laughs> I feel like the the corporate entity spirit of Disney at this point would not have allowed um, Land Before Time to show Oliver and Company up too much just because it was the recently departed Don Bluth. So there was almost like, we'll throw some money into this just to overpower it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could that could be the thing just a little little hate money right <laughs> um dom deloise apparently chose this over land before time so maybe you made the wrong decision in your book so <laughs> did cheech marin have a uh an opportunity for land before time he it didn't seem he did so he's i, I saw a list where he's done quite a few voiceovers which you start thinking about yeah that, that makes sense so <laughs> Now, now, oh. just to ask the dumbest question that I could, that this was the real Cheech Marin that was in this movie, right? In Oliver that is, and Company, that yeah. is correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. It would have been weird for someone to be doing such an on, you know, point personation of him. Well, and I, that's ironic you said that because another weird rabbit hole I was um, going down was the the Legends in Concert, where they have you know like thirty impersonators on on stage at various. Like Myrtle Beach or again Vegas or Branson or I'm something. Not as, I'm not familiar with this. I mean, as you're explaining it, I understand the concept, but I haven't heard of that before. No. If if you see the logo, you might, especially living in Florida, you might recognize the logo. I think I remember it. I I think they had a show at Six Flags or something when I was growing up, and the uh, the guy it's that Legends that, in Concert. Yeah, and the guy that runs it, his name is uh, Johnny Stewart, and he's kind of like one of those entertaining madmen, you know. And when you watch videos, uh, interviews of him and stuff. So, but yeah, I, I think Six Flags Over Georgia, I think they actually had one of these shows uh, when I was growing up. Oh, and I wasn't really interested. Lame. This looks oh, really it, lame. Oh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's impressively lame. Like watch a clip or two. The point being, I, I uh, when I put on a clip a few days ago, I got instantly got like fake Cheech and Chong. So, <laughs> oh, this looks awesome. Thank you for bringing up Legends in Concert, which I'm now going to be watching on YouTube as soon as this is over. And, and do chase that uh, with a few interviews with its um, creator, Johnny Stewart. So I think okay. that's his name. <laughs> uh, just one of those highly entertaining madmen, you know. And where did that tangent come from? Remind me. <laughs> uh, was this a fake Cheech? This is the real okay, Cheech. Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> and so, so that does also have a fake Cheech Marin somewhere in it. Yes, uh, yeah, where they're do trying to do the stand-up bits on stage, but it's you know impersonators doing it. So, <laughs> um, so he was clearly one of my favorite characters in this movie. I think for me, Cheech Marin sort of made it. Like it, it, he kept it moving along. Like the the comedic relief was awesome for his particular character. Like he was my favorite character. I think. No, Disney liked him. He shows up in the, as the uh, hyena in, in the Lion King. So we'll we'll have him back before too long. Um. The thing that I guess the source material is kind of what maybe put a wall between this and a bit because I, I have like a 
relatively strong hatred for Charles Dickens. Uh, ninth grade English. I read oh, every I book. Explore that a little bit. I read every book assigned. I read a lot, um, but yeah, we had to read Great Expectations, and it, and it wasn't what I expected. So I um, <laughs> stopped after the first two chapters. I just guessed on the test. I didn't even bother with the cliff notes. I just guessed. Got a sixty-seven on the test and got an A in the class because I'd read in every other book in the in the, in the class. So. You're allowed to, right? It's like, exactly. Like, I was like, this is this is my karma. Yeah. All at once. Well, he was paid by the word, wasn't he? Wrote for newspapers, so. <laughs> Um, so I have not read Charles Dickens. Um, that that completely turned me off to even bothering. So Tale of Two Cities, the most I know about that is uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously Oliver Twist is a story that I think people have probably heard. You know, seen the musical Oliver. That's probably I, I know I saw that when I was a kid, but not since the eighties. Um, yeah. So I don't know. What, what's your take on Dickens? Uh, honestly, I, I used to like the Christmas plays uh, when I was younger. Like the Dickens, out of all of the different plays, they were probably the coolest ones just because it felt more real. Like it was about this, and I guess maybe this built towards my conspiratorial mindset, right? But it's about the one guy in town that runs what? the Like the publishing company, essentially, right? Oh, crap. Maybe I'm Ebenezer Scrooge with <laughs> Scrooge running like the one place in town that can provide for this, you know, this whole community. And he's like this crotchety old grump. And it kind of presents this whole them against us and the, you know, the division of the classes. And it presents it in such an easy way for a child to understand because it's like this little broken boy isn't going to even have, you know, a, something to eat on Christmas day. And then, you know, this guy who employs the dad. So it, it sets that whole dichotomy up. But then I, I learned later on that there's all of these interpretations where Scrooge is kind of like the good person in the story and that the rest of the town really are kind of just being really lazy. It's, it's, sort of a funny interpretation but when i read that it just made me think like oh man maybe maybe there is something more to this story they should just do a remake it with uh, rupert murdoch right that'd be fun <laughs> i mean I, I love it and i guess maybe just the movie scrooge is is playing into it like there's just been so many awesome and i'm getting this right right this is charles dickens yes so that's correct. Like you, you are correct but uh but i think charles dickens work in general lends itself so well to great adaptations now does that improve the merit of charles dickens or is it just a coincidence that it's been you know sort of reprogrammed over and over but done very well like the the scrooge movie series and just you know the scrooge in general as a character is going to outlive people that even know who created it right so i think that there's something very alluring about that and i don't think it's some of that is just all dumb luck and marketing i think there's like an actual archetype that is so easy to understand but it's also done in a way that didn't get censored or you know i don't know like like the the childhood rhymes right ring around the rosy pocket full of posy when you look into them it's all about kind of death right it's about covering <laughs> up the, the the stench of death but it outlives its original intent and i I'm just fascinated with that kind of stuff. So on that level, Charles Dickens is fascinating to me because his work is timeless, regardless of the merit of the work itself. Now, when it comes to his writing, I'm sort of exactly with you, like outside of the the Christmas stuff, just because I guess it's embedded into my brain at this point, like, like binary or like an old piano with the notches, right? 
But for um, Oliver Twist, I remember I was supposed to read that and I might have just kind of skimmed the back and, you know, amalgamated what it was about and wrote a book report based on the back summary of the book. You put more work than I did into that then. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it was it was also for uh, for the Pizza Hut. Like you would if you read a bunch of books, you would earn Pizza Hut points. Then you could use those to auction and and get stuff. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah, actually, I do. Because um, I, I mean, I did, I do read a lot and did read a lot. So uh, that that wasn't well, the issue. Well, I, I kind of gamed the system though, because I would just go to the library and just write reports on the back, you know, based on the back of the books and turn them in and just get, just hoard in the uh, the points for those Pizza Hut auctions. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, my big beef is the just the dense victorian prose right that's that's the thing that's getting me um i've also never read moby dick but no one ever assigned it to me and i wasn't yeah i mean of course he's an american writer but also just kind of just that that 19th century unreadable like i prefer reading translated books from the 19th century most of how the are time. you on it's hemingway an, i can do oh hemingway yeah the, the, all the sentences okay. are short now it's great <laughs> and, 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 and unless they run on but they don't have giant words in there so yeah i loved hemingway um you know, I did my 18, 19 year old tear through Vonnegut, that sort of thing, right? So, <laughs> um, but what's it? I'm trying to think of the oldest. Yeah, I liked reading Greek dramas, like again, because they were like translated. So the, the language was reasonably okay. Yeah. So I, I just want, I want, yeah, as long I just as you want, don't have to read it in Greek or Latin, right? Right, right, right. So I just, I just want, I just want, um, language I can understand in my book, I guess, is the, the thing. Do you read any literature in Japanese? Or is do you just stick to English books still? I've read children's books in Japanese. <laughs> That's about it. So uh, no, 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 I don't is is the the answer. Um, my language learning skills are pretty raw, to be perfectly honest. My Japanese is not good. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> I, that's that's so American, and I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing is you're on a crowded train, crowded restaurant. You really can just tune everyone out, you know. So it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun. Um, this movie, I, I guess, as we get into it, the the original plot also had a little more Disney darkness, where Oliver's uh, cat parents were like murdered by the Dobermans, uh, the Doberman dogs from Oh God, what's the protagonist? Oh, see, that would have provided a, a much needed sort of uh, connection, though, between the end and the beginning. I think. Yeah, and they just—I mean, probably correct. We was like, yeah, this movie's gonna be kind of light, so maybe we don't want that in this one. I—I uh, I feel like it was missing though. Like, like there was a, a a missing piece, obviously, because almost every other Disney movie starts with this very dramatic, traumatic, you know, entrance. And this one, it was just like someone left the box of kittens outside on a road, and there was just one that ended up being the last to be picked, and that was sort of the first initial tragedy and it, it just felt like yeah there was something missing there from from the disney proxy okay so maybe you would have gone with that i mean this is the first this is the first disney animated movie that um eisner and katzenberger are fully in the cockpit for it's the first disney movie animated disney movie that no longer has any of the the nine old men involved this is you know fully the new crew now so they might have been trying to like cue a slightly different path on purpose. That or was this Giuliani or Ed Ed Coach? I mean, because because I wonder if like uh, whoever was running New York at the time in in eighty eight was like, hey, take that part out. Like we don't kill cats here. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe behind the scenes, I don't know. So, <laughs> um, 
unfortunately you know they're all on speed dial i mean they're at least they're on like the first few pages of speed dial yeah for for the 80s all i can um imagine those the ghostbusters mayor that's that's all i've got in my head so (laughs) um i did we had a class trip to new york city i think 1993 so it was like right on the cusp which was fun and for some reason they had us at a hotel like right off of times square so it was just like sleazy as hell maybe like a year or two later it wasn't but it still was in 1993 did you all go to fao schwartz I, maybe i know i've i know i was in there at some point i, I don't know if i feel like you would have re- remembered it if you brought a bunch of kids to fao schwartz but maybe not well these are junior high schoolers so we would have been like a little more um i mean still i don't know maybe i just was a very late bloomer but i think i went well maybe not junior high but yeah but F- fao schwartz was magic like seeing toys that were bigger than you but it was like the actual toys was mind-blowing and I since do... you're in the middle of new york there's always interesting characters inside the store too I might be thinking my memories might be the movie big is my problem. Now the specific memory I have from that trip is really stupid. That is buying the, the fish album hoist and green days dookie at the Sam goodies inside the empire state building that stuck in my head for some reason. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird sometimes what sticks in your head and what does not. So, um, I just remember it was sleazy enough still in 1993 that the, the class president tried to buy a fake ID and got mugged. So that was that was exciting. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to go to to New York every summer because it's where most of my family was from anyways. I think around that same time, too, I was like maybe shoplifting like Quasimodo CDs or something. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I think there's a statue of limitations eventually there. Um, yeah, no, I think we're, we're well beyond that. I don't even think that this Tower Records even exist anymore. Doesn't it wasn't Tower? I, I can't remember what the name was. It might have been Tower. Yeah, no, we actually still have them in Japan, although they've finally become kind Uh-oh. of a shadow in the past couple of years. So uh, they they ripped out at least the one here. They well, even the ones in Tokyo, they've made the stores much smaller. They now just have giant displays for K-pop acts, where they used to have catalogs of jazz and rock. So um i think one at one point there's gonna be a complete switch where right now it's gotten almost cheap like 99 cent please buy the single it's only 99 cents you know or like go to starbucks and buy this coffee and we'll give you this single for free five cents and at some point it's gonna be like sit in this booth and listen to this song for a minute and we'll pay you we'll you know we'll give you credits or something i really <laughs> feel like there's gonna be sort of a, a flippening at some point well, and uh, Disney News, I just saw an article like maybe last week or something that um, in Australia, Disney is no longer going to release physical media of their movies. Uh, Guardians 3 is the last one they're going to release in Australia. After that, it's all going to be digital, which is, you know, that's going to be the same, I think, other places within a couple of years. So, uh, I mean, it kind of is digital anyways at this point, or at least all the archives and everything when the studios transfer it between studios, at least they're never going to be transferring anything other than a hard drive. If it's physical media, you know what I mean? Yeah. I guess it's just, uh, you can't even, you know, they're not even going to make them anymore in Australia. So it's like, Oh, that's a little bit of a mile mark there. Isn't it? (laughs) I mean, could this just be, uh, like, um, upping the stakes on the Disney vault where now it's almost like Disney vault max. Right. So now if they actually do a physical release of something and, five years from now and it's like oh they haven't released anything are they ever going to release anything again we better get our hands on this one and now you can sell these little pieces of plastic for 5x like you don't have to sell 500 times them right you could just sell the same one for 50 times the price 
Yeah, yeah. I mean that you know that was a big deal about this time. Like, what do we do with the Disney bought? Because through the '60s, '70s, and the first half of the '80s, it was simple. We re-release a different film in the theaters every year, make some bank off of it, and and call it a day. So you know, and now it, by this time, about 1988, they're having to reconsider that business model. Again, this one, Oliver Company, is interesting in that it. Um, from 1989, I think they did put all of their releases, at least their new releases, on home video. But Oliver and Company did not show up on physical media and to, or home media until '96. Uh, so, besides the movie being a little slight, like you mentioned, uh, I, I think that also might be where this one isn't. It is the start of the Disney Renaissance. It just didn't feel like it because the movie was and I, I must so have long. seen this one in the theater because it it was like triggering me there was nlp anchors firing off left and right from the musical tunes and little phrases and even some of like the visuals of it but if it didn't come out on video until 96 then i mean i probably didn't care about this in 96 i was i was well on my way into high school at that point yeah, yeah. So I, I, and that's why I've, I've heard the title. I recognize the poster, but I, I'm pretty sure I never encountered the movie before. Um, I got a little thrown off by the voice cast because I, I start the movie and it's like Joey Lawrence. I'm like, oh yeah, Joey Lawrence. I'm, like, oh no, that's Billy Joel. Joey Lawrence is little Joey Lawrence. He is voicing Oliver. So, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know. I, I was just extrapolating, listening to Dodger. Hey, I'm the Dodger, and I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like Joey Lawrence, right? But uh, it, it's <laughs> it's, it's not. That's Billy Joel in his only acting role where he is not playing Billy Joel. So that's kind of interesting too. Um, what are the other stars? I mentioned Dom DeLuise shows up. Um, it did mention that Patrick Stewart was approached to voice Francis, the the dog but was you know busy starting next gen so he didn't do it but uh <laughs> that might have that might actually might have elevated it slightly no no shade thrown at the uh the voice actor uh who did it but i think pat i don't know i've i've just love patrick stewart so I'm oh yeah patrick stewart elevates everything doesn't he um <laughs> and of course uh bet bet midler is georgette who i guess i guess she's about as much of an actor as she is a singer especially in the 80s so props I mean, I don't, I don't think that I agree with her on any sort of uh, position, uh, reality, politically, morally, on uh, at all. But oh, I don't know. Definitely what a great are, so. cast for this. Absolutely <laughs> a great cast for this. Um, I will say I was not particularly into the music. Like the opening theme made me think of you know a sitcom theme. You know, like it's like the Full House or the Family Matters theme, right? That 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 yeah, was the that was yeah. the jib of that tune to me. So, um, we got a song. You know, Billy Joel contributed a song. Huey Lewis in the news. I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't really do it for me for a Disney movie. <laughs> no, it didn't. It, I mean, the only thing musically that stood out to me was that this, as it opens up, kind of keeping with that same motif of being. I'm going to say like the first modern American movie, I guess, in the '80s. <laughs> uh, to if you add all those qualifiers, eventually it becomes uh, a fact. So. But the very beginning, it kind of starts out with like a hip hop beat. Like there's someone playing a boombox in the middle of, you know, New York City. And then as Oliver transitions from that scene to the next one, he goes into like another little alley and when ends up in like a, a little Latin neighborhood. And then like playing salsa. And I just thought that those were almost like the first two times I'd heard modern music or at least modern to 1988. And I had like modern fashion and everything. So just playing on top of that 
the music was kind of interesting and it was like a harken back to like oh yeah that's what that's kind of what disney said hip-hop sounded like in 88 which isn't you know it's kind of like a it's like a weird uh rosy glasses to look through this it's had to be the first um disney movie with some hip-hop in it uh, even if it there, is there's a lot of fake. firsts in this one man there's a lot of firsts and there's there's also and i don't want to read too much into it but i kind of want to read too much into it just because you know i guess that's what the are point we, of what, what we're we doing? doing here right <laughs> so there's this concept in nlp uh neural linguistic programming which is just a kind of like a silly sales pitchy name for it. anyways um this concept in NLP called in like uh, embedding stories or embedded language. And to put it in like a quick way, I guess, if you were going to tell a really long story, right, you would tell that story and then lead up to like just before you kind of get to the point or the climax of it. And you stop yourself and you say, actually, that reminds me of this other story I want to tell you real quick. And then you jump into that story, right? And you, you tell the whole thing and then you, finish it and you collapse it and then you say okay now back to that original story and then you finish that story and then you collapse it what it's kind of does is that the outer story is the one that you're going to remember later that day maybe in like an hour maybe the next day or something but that inner story is potentially something that you're going to remember a lot longer from then it might not be accessible to you immediately but in like maybe a few months or years or whatever you'll still remember details of that inner story more than the outer story based on you know a bunch of woo-woo research and stuff based on how much you believe this well but this that's... movie good sorry go ahead I uh, just saying that's kind of true for podcasting. I mean, the parts of the podcast you tend to remember the best are, uh, are the weird random tangents, right? So then you can't remember which episode it was in because that wasn't the, the main point. <laughs> that's, that's actually a great. And, and honestly, NLP in a lot of ways is just some scientists sat down and picked up what worked in terms of rhetoric. Like what ways do humans communicate with each other? that makes it most efficient and then if you just got a bunch of weird science nerds and stuck them in a, a room for a while and they just dissected it and then they kind of come up with like the distilled elements of what makes rhetoric work and it's also i think you know my opinion why the concept of rhetoric which is one of the original seven classic uh, liberal arts is no longer really taught right it was the trivium quadrivium so it was grammar logic rhetoric and since we don't teach rhetoric anymore it's almost like this mystical thing when people have this awareness of how to, you know, use influence, especially if it's not within the specific areas of advertising, you know, marketing or politics. If it's not in those areas, then there's almost no use for it in, in sort of the modern world, I guess. So anyways, the, the whole concept of that, though, is that I really do see a lot of this kind of happening in Oliver Twist, where we've got this like... And I want to say if we take the Disney proxy, right? My little Disney proxy theory is that Disney replaces your parents with IP immediately. And then so they can sell you, you know, Happy Meals or whatever later down the line. But in this movie, as we already noted, it was kind of missing the original, the dogs eat Oliver's parents, apparently. Again, that would have made this make even more sense. But <laughs> even if you ignore that aspect, these kittens, they start in this box and then Oliver's stranded alone. Okay, so that you imagine you put the kid down in front of the movie 
and the parents walk away and now it's just the the TV is babysitting the child. So the child is identifying with the other child that's just been abandoned. You know what I mean? Like there's no parents around and it's just up to him to kind of figure his way through the world. And then as he figures his way through the world, he, uh, he goes into a house and then gets kidnapped from the house and then says, no, I want to go back to the house. And then on his way back to the house gets kidnapped from that. So if you were to imagine this concept of an embedded story, that's three stories deep, essentially, right? That inner kidnapping, the outer kind of fake kidnapping where like his friends came to quote unquote rescue him. And then the original dilemma that he was put in where it's just this box abandoned in the world. So it just keeps collapsing inward. I mean, it, it's Disney inception in a way when it comes to the Disney proxy, because every one of those tragedies, as I believe in this, you know, traumatic programming each one of those is a different kind of phase. And as the kid is identifying with this other kid going through that, I just, I feel like if, if this, you know, if we were to entertain the idea that there's an MK ultra scientist on the back of some, you know, screen and Disney room with their hand on the dial, it really does feel like this is them just going, mm, let's just turn this up a little tiny bit. And like, whoops, let's you know, they kind of slipped a little bit. Uh, and it, and it has this weird, like, why does he get kidnapped three times or, or sorry, you know, two times, but why are there so many tragedies that wrap this story together? But I, I find that, that it helps the movie out dramatically. Like I kind of love all of the different twists and turns. And one of them with a um, distinct serving side serving of a Stockholm syndrome, right? Cause they get him out of the house. It's like, why'd you do that? <laughs> That's where I want to Maybe it was in Stockholm though, but it was like, he really, well, he was just getting like loved on. He didn't have to go back out into the streets and hustle anybody. He kind of found like a sugar mama, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm just talking about the, the general concept of your Stockholm syndrome, right? I mean, oh, right. <laughs> it, it, it is a, a, a nice, a, a nice young girl, right? Who uh, also, you know, Jenny is obviously very close to Penny. So that's where this had had some seeds in being a rescue sequel. <laughs> this uh, was Jenny from the block, though. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's like basically the same character, I guess. Um, I, I don't remember. Well, Jenny's background was what, like. Well, just living on a disturbing boat with a disturbing woman, I guess, was the setup in the rescuer. So, uh, this one's not yeah, that. I dark. think in the rescuer, she was more of like a victim. Like there was, a, there's probably a creepy backstory to that one. No, this does have um, Jenny's very absent parents, which is, I, I guess, you know, if you wanted, it's it's much another than... level of that that inception, right? So, like even even the child that Jenny herself is rescuing, like she can't help out entirely because her parents also sort of abandoned her so yeah i mean all of that th th there's so much more like i'm just kind of oversimplifying that concept but as you go through in your notes and if, if you're going to watch this movie after watching this i guess keep that in mind about these like inner and outer shells of trauma yeah because uh what is what is the one that i was thinking oh this would traumatize an eight-year-old watching the film or a four-year-old or whatever um where it's like oh sorry you know your parents are not going to be here for your birthday you know to your average preschooler that's like oh my god that's the end of the world you know <laughs> i mean it's it's a strong character development for a young kid but also for adults right because there's an adult that might see that and be like i miss my dad or like you know that's the same that it was for me or so, I mean, D Disney's got the, by now, I can clearly say with Oliver and company, regardless of commercial or critical success, they've kind of got the formula down. Like whether, you know, they, they made it in a laboratory or someone just kind of crafted up home style, 
they kind of have it down now. Like they, they've got the beats and now they can just kind of focus on technology. Yeah, I, I will say this one uh, does a very nice, if we're talking technology, um, you really don't notice the CG stuff too much, uh, which apparently is mostly the inanimate objects in the movie. So there's a couple places. I mean, but, but you know, I was kind of looking out for them and I just noticed them in a few spots. But when, when you see traffic, like cars or trucks and stuff moving, those are probably the most obvious because they're just so, uh, so exact in in their kind of like uh, geometry that doesn't look the same as any other Disney movie before this, except outside of very specific scenes like the clock uh, tower scene in, in uh, one of the previous movies we saw. Mouse Detective. Just, uh... Mouse Detective, yeah. And yeah, I mean, Roger Rabbit had a little bit of it, but also like weirdly analog stuff that that we noticed doing that one so this is so, kind of un- so so i gotta ask you since we we just did roger rabbit and we you should definitely watch that episode if you haven't seen it yet. but um do you put roger rabbit in the same class as all of these other movies like every other disney animation before it and now we're talking about oliver and all the ones after it because i i sort of still put it in its own like category i i mostly do i mean i you know, I think of Roger Rabbit as simply being like a movie and not an animated right. movie, even though, yeah, it has a ton of animation. But um, it, I don't I mean, it's not usually lumped in with the, you know, Disney's animated classics or anything. Right. It's it's, it's kind of left to be its I think own it ought movie to be. as well. I think it really ought to be. Yeah, I think it probably should. I, I mean, we just didn't want to skip it. Right. So uh, <laughs> it made sense in our in our for our purposes and in, in our in our sequence. It makes sense. Right. So, um, well, we are creators of our own reality here. Yeah, yeah, we've we've created a new a new uh, zeitgeist for Disney. No, we haven't. We're just we're just following movies they made. But yeah, I I mean, even they we are not infringing it. on anything. Let's get that very clear. We have not infringed. We're not no. Because um, oh, sorry, I, I just lost that train of thought. Oh well, <laughs> let's move on. Now you say you have a whole lot of notes that are not necessarily on the movie, which I guess maybe we should start diving a bit into those. Uh, well, I mean, aside from this this overarching theme of like the Inception Disney proxy thing going on, I also felt like there was a few other references. Like one of the big ones for me, and this is probably just personal, but when they introduce the bad guy, right, Sykes, um, they kind of give him this Dr. Claw entrance. And 1988 would have been peak uh, Inspector Gadget, Dr. Claw. Because they show this guy in a chair, over the shoulder shot, looking at something on a screen, and he like pounds his fist on a desk. Which at that point, like this has been the uh, exact animated sequence has been kind of programmed into me. You know, it was like this is a bad guy. If you ever see an over the shoulder shot and someone pound their fist on the desk, even if they're doing something good, they're kind of the bad guy. So that was a, a huge one for me. Like, did they and do that on purpose? Is that just an archetype that I just never noticed before? Um, and then there was one weird spot in here where Sykes is telling his um, Fagin to like come inside the building and he's like, you push the door, you don't pull on it, but it's got like the pull handle, right? And I would, I immediately was thinking, why does it have the pull handle? If it's a push door, why would it even have the pull handle on it? And it kind of like threw me for a, a, a dumb rabbit hole that I started going down, but it was it made me try to re like think the whole movie in more esoteric terms because at that point 
Sykes didn't make sense. Fagan made kind of sense, but he was like, he had a one foot in both realms. He was kind of like helping, but he was also kind of working for the bad guy. Um, so I started just like, what if these were Jungian archetypes? Uh, but we've kind of done that before. And then I started thinking like, well, maybe what if they were tarot cards or something? So I was kind of going through a tarot card deck and I and I aligned each of the different characters to some different tarot cards. And and it actually like freakishly worked out better than I was expecting it to. So I don't know how familiar or how much you, you care about tarot uh, or Jungian archetypes. Oh, I'm I'm down for both. So I'm I'm very curious what cards you're going to um attach to these characters. <laughs> and and this is kind of a, a cool because th- I guess like in my opinion. Jungian archetypes and tarot and even if you wanted to get into like Kabbalah and tracing the tree of life and the Sephiroth and going through all the stages these could kind of just be different ways of interpreting uh the same sort of you know more abstract concepts like it's just a bunch of different people from different backgrounds and time periods that are explaining this abstract thing that you can't draw a picture of because it's just too abstract for that a so tarot ago. is just one of those yeah a few years ago I actually uh while we were bored at work, I, I gave my coworker a, a reading, right? And it was like surprisingly bad. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then he proceeded to have like the worst year ever. So I was like, oh. Oh, God. Did you? I mean, you may have like done that to him. <laughs> I hope not. But uh, you ever consider that? I mean, I, that's kind of where I'm at. I feel like if you were to give, if you were ever to give someone a tarot reading or any kind of reading and the things that you said came true, I would put way more of my money on you causing those things to have happened than you being prophetic i'm a bad co-worker <laughs> but i i mean maybe unless you unless you were like mk ultra like secretly you know whispering into his ear playing like a looped recording of like i will fail uh then <laughs> i don't i wouldn't put too much of it on you but yeah you were kind of like the direct cause of it maybe yeah probably and then another coworker, uh, I guess he was just trying to get rid of his stuff. So about six months ago, he gave me this nice leather-bound tarot set, and I, and I got a couple books about the I Ching and tarot on my bookshelf there that I have not read yet. But <laughs> okay, well, so so you're you're uh, fairly versed at least in the the major and minor arcana. I assume, yeah, yeah, right? that's why I'm, that's why I'm saying, hey, yeah, throw out throw out what you're attaching so, these guys so to. So Oliver to me is an obvious fool. That one's kind of uh, the easy give me, right? Because the fool is the guy who isn't necessarily foolish. The fool is just somebody that has embarked on a new path and they're kind of approaching the world with fresh eyes, almost like a child would. Um, A lot of people get that misunderstood where they think the fool means like the idiot. It's not not the same thing. If anything, the fool can be a very good thing, especially if it's at the beginning of a story. Uh, you might not want to draw the full card at like the midpoint of your story, but you know, everyone's different, you know, different, different strokes for different cartoon folks or whatever. And so I will say that when you said it, that was the only one that I was like, oh, I guess Oliver is a fool. And uh, he, yeah, I, yeah. He, he kind of has to be right. Uh, especially when you go through this like hero cycle of any story, which we already kind of established Disney has a formula. So at this point you, I would, I mean, I haven't even, done this i just did this kind of as fun but i would almost imagine we could draw these same tarot cards for like the next movie that comes up um and they might even come in like the same sequence and everything i don't have the the gumption to actually like sit down and keep track of if it's the same sequence but if anyone does um so all over the fool because he's you know innocence he's spontaneity new beginnings like he's kind of the fool like you know let's not even argue about that one 
Dodger is in the middle, but I think he's maybe the magician because Dodger represents skill and resourcefulness and more importantly, transformation because Dodger is ultimately like if we were to say this was sword in the stone, right? Dodger is kind of Merlin and, um, you know, and Oliver is sort of the I trying to remember the, the kid's name from sword in the stone, but it's kind of dead to me now. So well, you got the, the you got the yeah. I mean, you got the Jungle Book with a similar trajectory. Although I will say, despite it's the formula, Dodger, man. Despite Dodger being voiced by Billy Joel, for some reason it doesn't feel as weird in Oliver and Company. I guess maybe because you're like Dodger, artful Dodger, and Oliver Twister. You know, he's only well, a little here's, older. Here's so. the difference: is that Dodger is clearly socially acclimated. There's other healthy. Well, I mean, arguably, but there's lots of other people that rely on him and look to him. Whereas that wizard thing, it's like the old guy that lives in the woods and he's a complete recluse and he doesn't have any social skills. That's, in my opinion, that's kind of what makes it creepy. So <laughs> Dodger is, I think that they've they've locked in like, okay, whoever the adult character is that comes in and serves as that proxy maybe needs to be socially acclimated and have other like healthy relationships with the world. And it wor it works here, I think. So are you willing to call Merlin the magician? <laughs> well, so I'll say Dodger's the magician. Dodger's the Merlin here a little bit. Okay. Um, but, he, but he's still because he's ultimately the one that's responsible for transforming the fool. And then you've got Jenny, which I'm going to say is the empress. Um, I mean, there's other ones that she could probably fill in here. But the, the empress being like the nurturing, the abundance, the, you know, agricultural female entity. So that's kind of a give me. Sykes, for an obvious reason, he can kind of be like the devil, I would assume, but not just because he's the, the bad guy, but because he really does represent the materialism. He keeps dogs on chains, you know what I mean? He's like chained to the physical world and of like greed and gambling, and he kind of represents the ultimate seedy underworld of this New York City that we kind of like started out on. So it's almost like if you were to take all of the bad parts of New York uh, at whatever a kid might imagine the bad parts of New York are in 1988 and put it into a character. That's kind of what Sykes is. It's like, oh, that's the guy that's behind all the, the murders and the marijuana. You know what I mean? Like, he's the bad guy. So I think that he kind of represents the devil. And then Fagin was was kind of my favorite out of all these because in the Jungian archetype, for sure, he's kind of the shadow in a way, just or like maybe the trickster um, because he feels a little bit outside of the story itself like he doesn't have to adhere to either of the rules and and long-winded way of getting here but this is when the devil and fagin have this interaction and fagin i'm i i'm gonna make him abstract wheel of fortune because i see him as a catalyst and again this catalyst being outside the system because when fagin tells him push the door don't pull it it's it's the only part in the entire movie where something non clearly nonsensical happened. Because again, if you think about it, it flies in, you see the twin towers, you see the real New York, Kodak, Coca-Cola, like all of the, they have a rider moving truck in one of the scenes, you know, they've taken all this great stake to be very detailed. And it, either it was just a silly little throwaway joke of like, maybe someone was reading too much Gary Larson far side. And they were like, put in the, you know, push the door, pull the door joke it didn't have the comedy to it because why is this horrible evil devil guy that might hurt you installing backwards door handles just to you know mess with you and that's when i was like okay fagin 
doesn't actually exist in this reality or if he does he's kind of that interdimensional shadow being that acts as the catalyst between the hero and the bad guy and kind of tells the hero what he needs to do without necessarily helping him directly because that would have destroyed the karmic balance between good and bad right all right, am I reading way too much into that, or is or is that? Oh, you are, good? but it's fun. <laughs> and I mean, you do start thinking about the same thing, like like we were talking about with uh, Merlin. You start applying like, where does this fit in other movies, and why? Right? Um, again, the 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 rescuers. That's kind of like a weird alternate reality with uh, what's well, not Cruella de Vil. It's it's whatever the name was there, but um, yeah, it's like they have a weird swamp alternate reality where they have their like, you know, victim slave or whatever. So, and they can ride crocodiles like they're like airboats. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, th they have this material boat at least, and they're trying to get material gems or what, 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 what were they looking for? A diamond or something. So, well, and yeah. at no point in that movie, did it portray itself as being so realistic um, I mean, in every Disney movie, animals talk, right? So, so you can't really get over that aspect of suspending your disbelief. But when it comes to Oliver and Company, they really it was this is gritty. This is you know this is hip hop. You know this is people listening to boomboxes. Um, and you know, and I guess the original version was, and here's Dobermans tearing apart a family of cats. So it feels like they meant to be gritty. There wasn't a lot of slapsticky, nonsensical stuff set this damn door handle man so i'm sorry if i'm if i'm stuck on the door handle but i feel i feel like like it's the key to something like we need to figure out how to unlock that door go through the door okay there's <laughs> got to be a way to pull it open man they're like instead of pushing it in you got to be able to pull it open <laughs> um do you have cards for anyone else i'm, I'm thinking uh, yeah, so, probably deserves so, one uh georgia has one um tito deserves one he's going to be the knight of wands from the minor arcana because energy adventure impulsiveness what else but do you minor. gotta say right but he's but he's in the, he's he doesn't get one of the major cards he's i don't i don't really i don't see major and minor you know they're all equal all the tarot cards are equal to me they they serve their different individual roles and in fact we only agree upon one standard of tarot but there's so many different tarot decks my favorite is like there's a a saturnian like italian tarot that they found on pump anyways completely different tangent we should do for another episode <laughs> uh tito is the knight of wands fiery spirit impulsiveness i mean it's that kind of represented him georgette is going to be the queen of cups also from the minor arcana um because she kind of stands open to uh to you know debate or interpretation here they clearly show her as like a bad guy in this movie but i also think that She's in New York, right? She's lived in New York her entire life. She's seen the ups and the downs and everything. So she's a survivor. And I think that maybe any of the malintent that you might attribute to her originally, it's really just her looking out for herself and surviving. Like anyone that just lives by themselves in New York City would have to do at that point, right? So I don't hold it against her that she was almost trying to push uh, all of her out because at the very end she comes around anyways so that's why i have to justify queen of cups here because that kind of stands diva. for intuition emotion and grace because you have to admit she she is kind of graceful like she does represent those things even if there's a little bit of narcissism in there so i don't know i liked i liked her character and i feel like uh then this isn't an endorsement of this aspect of it but there was a little bit of a 
uh man the the e word uh you use something or other um when in the early 1900s when they just wanted to breed like she makes lots of references to being very well bred for example and that how those attributes of her breeding is what makes her good and she even makes it implicate i can't remember here i've got the exact lyric written down though and she's not for not for vanity but for humanity so that was her justification for why a dog is putting on makeup and first of all it's like why does a dog have to be anyways it wasn't for her vanity it was just for all of humanity to not expose them to i guess things that aren't beautiful and again that kind of goes in with uh some of the tarot reading but then she also says shows how the breeding shows um so like it was a this double on top another collapsed you know sort of nlp programming here but shows how the breeding shows like a breeding show where they parade the dogs around and you vote on them based on how well they've been bred right which is a direct correlation um but it's also this humanized dog right so it's no longer a dog breeding show but now it's like a human dog hybrid breeding show which starts taking on weird connotations there that's why you can't do it here because the animals are the characters but i I do like the movie best in show where they're basically taking all of these attributes and uh throwing them onto the owners right <laughs> well, the dogs are literally just walking around oblivious because that's what probably is the real case so uh, uh of course they do it you know it's a pretty funny movie so that's how they go about it i wonder you, is you that know. is that that can't be american uh in nature right they've been having dog breeding competition since before america existed i assume that's probably why would, dogs even exist yeah yeah that movie's based in the states but yeah it seems some, like something you'd be rolling in, in the old country for sure <laughs> so um einstein is going to be strength bravery compassion like the actual card of strength uh rita i kind of see i mean we're getting to the the side characters here rita's the the high priestess uh, which might also sound surprising, but this is intuition, mystery, and subconscious knowledge. And this is because Reed is the one that actually gives wisdom and guidance to Oliver. She's the only one that really gives him like this in-depth understanding of the world and not just the rules of how to like act within it, which is kind of the role of uh, of Dodger. Like Dodger understands the mundane rules, right? But I think Rita gives him, I guess, more insight. And then finally... Francis has to be the hierophant uh, because he represents tradition. He represents spiritual guidance and conformity. I mean, that's like his role is to do those things. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, the, the last year I was like sitting here struggling with like which dog was that, but uh, <laughs> so maybe that was the part that was deep, but uh, too deep. But the first couple, yeah, definitely. And I do like that the high priestess though would be kind of buried in there, you know, not the obvious character. So I mean I guess that's kind of how they play the Oracle in the Matrix, which would have sort of a similar role, maybe. I don't know. I guess that, that one's a whole can of its own worms, but <laughs> And it and it really does too. I've made some other notes on like how <laughs> this one was more silly, but it was if it was progressing through the planet archetypes, how would the passage of Oliver through New York City be correlated to a passage to the classical planets uh, back when they thought, you know, sun and moon were were planets. So it's and it, and it really it lays like directly on top, almost as if it was someone made this map out. The, I, the planets don't go in order, but it would be the sun starting out of obviously, you know, the again, the fool, the ego, the new rising sun. 
that's ego identity vitality then it goes in directly into the moon and this is oliver trying to search for a home you know the moon is like this forever wandering um detached you know like mother that that can't get close to her son and then you've got mercury this is oliver meeting dodger which again fits directly into dodger being the magician slash the trickster the catalyst right mercury quicksilver that was kind of seen alchemically as like a catalyst component venus which is love beauty harmony that's obviously him meeting jenny that's his first real touch with like this feminine energy so that's kind of the venus then you've got mars where we've got the conflict with sykes the ultimate evil you know here's this battle that's starting to emerge jupiter which represents luck and expansion. So this is him coming together with Dodger and the crew and like kind of forming together a plan. Um, you've got Saturn and this is discipline and challenges. And this is kind of like a, like the karmic expenditure, uh, which also correlates towards the end of like a climax, right? This is where you're actually going to spend all of the karma that you've built up. Um, and this is where he actually gets abandoned and some of the hardships that he goes through. And then finally, Neptune, uh, we're going to skip Uranus because uh, it's fun to say, but I just had to say Uranus. And then <laughs> Neptune is Oliver's dream of like that better life because Neptune represents sort of like that, the dream realm. Uh, and it's the, and it's kind of like the farthest away in that regard. So anyways, yeah, that was another answer. I had the, the Jungian, the tarot and uh, maybe like the planetary alignment breakdowns of it. No, I like that. You definitely start throwing on movies and, and thinking, you know, I, I like the tarot approach. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I've heard that used for a, a media look before. But hey, that's what I we was do inspired here. by the Winnie the Pooh one because everyone everyone does the like diagnosis of Winnie the Pooh. So that's when we were you know going through and assigning all of them different archetypes. So I feel like it's it would be interesting if we do like a different rating scale for for the movies now. <laughs> Who do they apply to? Yeah. The next one will be like, like which G.I. Joe character? This is going to turn into like a, a social media trivia, isn't it? <laughs> well, and He-Man, I guess Orko is the fool. That's fun. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why that came to my mind first, but hey, maybe that's Orko was the, the original magic. Jar Jar Binks, wasn't he? Oh, I don't know. I liked Orko when I was a kid. The toy, you, you they had a like no, a no, the, plastic the toy as a kid, it's cool. Go back and watch Orca as an adult and imagine just hearing that nonstop in the background. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess some kids did like Jar Jar Binks. So um, I liked I, that movie, to be honest. I didn't like Jar Jar Binks, the character, but I liked the movie. And apparently I was I mean, I was shunned for having that opinion at the time. <laughs> and maybe even now, I think even now that like that, that outs me. Yeah, I was thinking like I rewatched a few years ago and um, yeah, I didn't. And I'm not. I, I didn't hate Anakin, man. I mean, if Casey, the off chance that he ever hears is, I didn't hate you, man. That was a, <laughs> that was a decent, decent job for a decent role, man. I don't know. It's a kid. What can you do? So, I mean, I, I just did a podcast from Return of the Jedi, and I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm fine with the Ewoks. I had, you know, I didn't have teddy bears. I had Ewoks. So, <laughs> and they ate people, right? Ewoks ate people. Oh, they should. Yeah, I don't know. Oh yeah, am I making that up? To, they no, ate well, people. They're, they're, they're trying to cook our our heroes, so that would you would correct assume that they're also going to eat our heroes. So yeah, good point. <laughs> Maybe that's why. I mean, I they're cute them. and cuddly, and they eat people. <laughs> well, that's like you know some bears, right? Or dogs or cats. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of cute animals that will rip you apart and then try and eat you, probably. So <laughs> that's the fun of the animal kingdom. <laughs> I don't know if any. Well, yeah, no, we got some dogs that'll 
rip you a new one and here done that that almost oh, there's, happens there's to cases Pagan. all the time where they find someone that like died in their apartment or their house with their animals and the animals will wait maybe like a a day or two before they start eating their face the, the dingo ate my baby yeah okay <laughs> um this I guess episode my... is actually sponsored by Purina Cat Chow. <laughs> Yummy. Buy, buy, buy your cat Purina before it eats your face. That's a new tagline. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, this is the first time. I, I think I tuned out a little bit for the chase climax of this one because I, I wrote in all caps loud noises, which is what I do in my <laughs> notes when I'm just kind of like uh, tapping out a bit <laughs> of a movie. Uh, I think it's the first one of the Disney's where I've... Uh, gotten to my my loud noises typing so <laughs> yeah i mean this this one also kind of like because of that outer and inner thing which may be intentional maybe not but because of that once they start wrapping it up this was still only an hour and 14 minutes it was definitely not like on the longer side of the spectrum for disney movies so it almost felt like if they started and they got halfway in they shouldn't have also had like the we're going to rescue you and then you get snatched during that rescue and then you go back home there almost needed to be an hour and a half two hour movie i'm kind of glad they didn't for the movie's sake um but in order for it to all tie up nicely they just kind of like collapse it all at the very end and in i guess in nlp terms you can also do that uh but it has a slightly different effect than when you gradually sort of collapse those stories in and out so i don't know maybe like on my deathbed I'll be like, oh, now I know about that door. Like, that's why he couldn't open it. <laughs> I just figured it out. Now I show yeah. open the door. <laughs> <laughs> the keys to the universe found in Oliver and Company. But hey, you know, I, I guess we did find quite a bit in here, didn't we, in the end? Or or at least we extrapolated quite a bit, which you, you can also do if you want to. So, you know, it's like that's sort of the point of doing this is to overthink it, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some, sometimes it's easier than than others, but this one was surprisingly fun to do, and I and I have to owe my nostalgia and Disney programming to that because I don't necessarily know if it was completely based on merit. It really just I felt like I don't know. I, got, I felt like I got transported back to 1988 for part of this movie. So there's there's a lot of bias in that, and then Cheech Marin didn't help, uh, you know, in a good way. In a good way, I guess like a, a lot of animes in japan kind of do that to recreate the cities they'll just have these hyper realistic looking uh cityscapes um that you can find i mean the movie opens on the twin towers literally so it's you know it's got some of that to it which i i did see there was there was thought in editing that out after 2001 but it was one too much of a problem people in new york are not we want to be the new york that was in 1988 forget about it forget about (laughs) it but never forget but also forget about it but also never forget about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do both at the same time yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I'm walking here. laughs> um i think i'm finished with my main points if, if you have anything else you want to toss onto this one no man I, I think this was a good one i definitely technically there was an upgrade and a downgrade in some ways uh the coloring was oddly flat to me it uh that part of was like the digital but I don't know if I would rather have the trade-off of flat colors versus like Xerox, you know, like like a coffee stain or dust uh, on some of the the intermittent frames. So um, this is like, the I last technically... movie to use a lot of the Xeroxing method, by the way. But they, by this point, I guess they've just been able to finesse it a lot better. Mm. 
but but i guess anytime like the actual animation part came on like the fluidity of the animation was great but the color felt uh very dead to me like the map painting of the background held my eye way more than a lot of the focal characters which is kind of a no-no in animation but it also almost felt like there were some growing pains with the digital process at this point because i think that they probably also digitally colored i mean i didn't look into any of the technical aspects but i just assumed that the whole thing had to be digitally colored because of that yeah it is interesting going through these films sequentially because it's like wow disney really was kind of out to pasture how often the wilderness for like decades which well in, in 1988 this this animation like like it's it's hard to describe this because when you say animation like it it's such a generic term but when you actually see like the frame to frame animation, like the hand drawn animation, the number of keyframes and the continuity between those keyframes, like there's obviously like Disney masterful artists behind the way that the figures move and the way that they expand and are emphasized and everything. Um, but if you were to compare like the overall fidelity, like just take a screenshot of anything in this movie of Oliver and compare it to like a popular 1988 Saturday morning cartoon, the Saturday morning cartoon might actually have slightly more interesting, you know, lines and stuff going on. It obviously wouldn't have had the amount of detail because we're comparing a huge screen to a TV screen, different aspect ratios, formats, everything. But like it, it, it wasn't like Disney was leaps and bounds ahead of the competition at this point. If anything, this movie might show that they were a little bit behind in some of the aspects, not the map painting, not the fidelity and the skill of the artists, but I guess just in how much time they were putting into like the coloring and stuff. I don't know. When the late eighties, shaded like the art director of the of Disney in the in nineteen eighty eight. You know what the hell do I know? No, I mean looking retrospectively, Don Bluth definitely was like owning them at this point in time as far as like artistic animation. <laughs> we we have to we have to do like a Don Bluth run after we're expended through the Disney ones and do all the Land Before Times and stuff. How many are there? There's like eight of those. I, I guess only the first. Yeah, I know. Time, I, but... I stopped keeping track after <laughs> two because, you know, you grow older and then you're like, oh, man, this like number 23 just came out. This is crazy. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I guess we'll wrap it up for today then. And uh, what's up in your world? It's uh, it well, will be late August for the listener. So well, I want to see if, if you like Oliver and Company or you like Cheech Marin, you should definitely check out my interview with Chong, uh, Tommy Chong, that's on my channel here on, well, where I guess wherever you're listening. Soon I hope to have it uploaded to all different podcast channels, but for now it's on my YouTube channel um, with Tommy Chong. We talk about ghosts and Bigfoot and stuff. It's, it's pretty cool. And then, man, I've got a couple really big, like I've got more than a couple, like 20 huge projects coming out soon. So I'm only going to mention like a handful. Um, one of them is called Frazzle Drip Funhouse. And this is about an animatronic bear that lives in the basement of an arcade run by a death cult. It is definitely a comic or an adults only comic. There's no nudity or anything. It's just incredibly horrifically gory, but also lots of horrible cheesy like b movie one-liners it's a love letter to slasher movies and just over the top you know horror flicks of the 80s and 90s so that one's going to be coming out on indiegogo and we'll run it for the month of october yes yeah, so if you're listening to this in august there's plenty of time <laughs> so the month of october we'll be running that there'll be more information on that on paranoidamerican.com and then i'm also 
putting together the final touches on my adult comic series called Illuminati. Ooh. And it's going to be five different issues. Each issue is two different short stories. And it's got things all the way from the Statue of Liberty coming back to life in a thousand years from now and having to repopulate America by um, combining forces with other statues all like other national monuments all across the country so that's going to be an interesting one there's a one where uh abraham lincoln's wife gets bored and invites the fox sisters over to summon a celestial companion uh, i've also got a completely illustrated version of john d and edward kelly when um they summoned the angel uriel and he told them they had to swap wives and uh what else a, a very 12 page graphically detailed version of Aleister Crowley uh, having relations with Barbara Bush's mom in a really fun story on that one too. So I'm I'm really excited for that series in particular to come out. So yeah, Illuminati. I don't even know if it'll be out in August or not. I'll, I'll, there'll definitely be a soft launch sometime soon. So yeah, pay, pay attention to ParanoidAmerica.com. I think they'll probably be limited to like my Patreon subscribers. Uh, when I do the soft launches, because because usually I'll get like a few hundred first, see how well I do, see if you know there's any issues with the story, give them to people that like really are the hardcore adopters, and then I'll do like a crowdfunding campaign and make them more available to like a wider audience. But yeah, so if you're if any of that sounds interesting at all to you, check out the Paranoid American Patreon. And uh, oh, last last little plug here too, occulttodecode.com. I've been working on this thing as a side project. It's got a Gamatri calculator. It's got a date calculator. And for anyone listening, if you use the date calculator and then click on the moon icon in any of the little moons that show up, it'll list uh, like a hundred different events that happened on any day in history. So it's, it's actually a credibly useful tool. And I'll end up charging for it at some point in the future. All righty. As for this one, it's uh, caught Disney. Um, I, I do I have yeah. Okay, we on X, man. Okay, with the the artist formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we're there. Uh, we're kind of on Facebook. Um, so you know, if you want to contact us there, please do so. Are you on Threads? I'm not on Threads myself. Uh, I heard I heard Threads had the biggest explosion of new users that promptly all left so i'm not quite sure what the status of threats is right now it's weird man i don't i don't understand it yet but i'm also getting into that age where i'm like old and don't understand technology yeah i mean the same thing kind of happened with mastodon where everyone kind of ran there and then just never nothing ever oh there's happened. so many there's yeah. so fucking many that i've signed up for see elon musk already knows that he owns your soul <laughs> so that's that's why you're that's why you're on X Man, and it's not a cool '90s rave, which is too bad. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go chase and go. I'm gonna go chase some cars, I guess, in in honor of Oliver and his friends. Captain, where my 